Ahoy! Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your captain, or I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week we are closing out the year by finishing our conversation with Jamie Goodall, author of The Daring Exploits of Black Sam Bellamy, From Cape Cod to the Caribbean, published by the History Press. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to check it out. Thank you all so much for listening, and tune in at the very end for a special message. But for now, let's dive back in. Jamie, let's turn to really the kind of most important uh, aspect of Bellamy's life, which is, you know, you write that he had, in all his months traveling around the Caribbean, um, he had been amassing his fleet, he'd been plundering, looting, um, and and one day he comes across what you call the biggest prize of all, and this ship, <laughs> your description of it, I, I mean, it it was like something out of I don't know the the Lord of the Rings. It almost was too you know too fanciful to be true, and yet we not only did it exist, it was. Uh, as ornate as the records indicate. And we know that because, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil what, what happened with Barry Clifford, but tell <laughs> us tell us about this ship and tell us what Sam Bellamy did when he saw it. So this was a ship that was much larger than any of the ships in his little fleet. Uh, as you mentioned, it was, you know, ornate, but the size is what really drew Bellamy to it because in his mind, there's greater capacity for storage, right? Because uh, a lot of times pirates preferred smaller vessels. They're faster, easier to maneuver, all of that. But that means limited cargo holds and that required frequent stops to ports to then fence your loot. And so um, this would give Bellamy an opportunity to spend more time at sea as opposed to having to stop frequently at ports. And it ends up being this um, just wildly successful slaving ship, right? The Witta, as it was called, um, that was its purpose. And so once Bellamy realized that, it made it even more attractive in the sense that slaving ship cargo holds are I won't say built differently, but they are um, arranged differently. And so um, they're designed to fit as many human bodies in it as possible, uh, which is, you know, absolutely terrible, but that was their purpose. And this created more open space in a way that you don't see in a lot of traditional cargo holds. Um, And this just was, sort of the crowning jewel of his fleet at this point, right? This is the biggest ship. This is the, uh, it's got a prominent name. I mean, there was a uh, news articles that went out when the widow left England and, you know, discussing its uh, voyages. Um, it was a really important and big deal in England. You had a, a captain named Prince who history judges him very, very differently now. But at the time he was, I really hate to say this. This is just, you know, so, so repulsive. He was a very accomplished slaver, you know, I mean, he had, he had made a lot of money in the slave trade already. And so here you had someone who was basically looking to profit even more 
and had had when Bellamy encounters him, this is a sort of a, a 17, 16, 17, 17, he, he had actually just made a run. I mean, he had actually just delivered some, you know, God help us all, cargo, right? And and so when he's coming back, he's he's looking to sail back to England and refit his ship there. And what was interesting about this in your account is that you describe the fact that Prince, the captain of the Whitta at the time, um, he had to get very specific. He knew he was a target, and he had to get very specific advice from the portmasters in the various islands on his route to say, you know, you have a bullseye on your back and, and and you have a narrow window of time with, you know, weather patterns and so forth to kind of get from here to here. And then once you get past a certain point, you're, you're in the clear, you know, you're out of their range, you know, you're safe to cross back, you know, over the Atlantic, you know, back to, back to the, to London. And, and he didn't make it, you know, no. uh, and, <laughs> he, and he, not. he very definitely did not. And there, I mean, there's just some sort of poetic justice there. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but what was interesting about that point in your narrative is that you you do describe that it was not a a done deal. It's not just like Bellamy saw the ship, lusted after it, said, "I'll have that," takes it, and it's a matter of 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 you know, it's just sort of cut and dried. There was actually quite a quite a difficult pursuit involved, wasn't there? Yeah. And I think that this is pretty typical actually of pirate ventures, which is why so many pirates only did one or two ventures before retiring. Uh, well, retiring, so to speak, because it is tricky to attack larger ships. Now you might have a faster ship. Your ship might be more maneuverable, which allows you to catch up to your prey. But you also typically aren't nearly as well armed, at least you know, ship-wise. You have far fewer guns, and so you have to sort of be wary of, of how this goes. And also, you just also don't know what you're going to encounter along the way. Foul weather can really impact your pursuit, and so... I think this particular instance, Bellamy really got a taste for just how difficult things could be because he hadn't really experienced that yet. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't say sad, but it's kind of odd that that was sort of his last real venture. Yeah, there's this interesting moment, and you describe it based on the sources that we have, which is the boarding of of the Huida, right? And and in your account, it it has to be described very quickly because it, it it doesn't seem as though we know e- exactly what happened in that particular moment. And I was just wondering, from your experience as a researcher and having studied uh, what the process looks like in other contexts, can, can you describe what it what it is like when, say, a smaller, faster ship sends out a boarding party to a much larger, more, you know, sort of resilient ship. You know, when when David goes up against Goliath like this, um, you know, you've already spoken about kind of the sense of reputation and the anticipation of violence, and you know, maybe maybe the larger ship doesn't necessarily want to engage with full cannon, you know, just yet. But but can you give us a sense of what is the strategy? What are the tactics? You know, when when is the, the battle 
fought for real or when it, is it won before it's even engaged in some cases? Like, Help us just to see that. It's really tricky because we don't have a lot of very specific accounts of ships being boarded by the pirates. Um, we do get sort of some fantastical recollections later uh, of people who were allegedly bored by pirates. Essentially, I think that one of the tricks is to try to catch your prey off guard. If you send a boarding party out, you want to do it in such a way that it's not just this giant ship like watching your boarding party come to them, right? Like, because at that point, you just start, you know, shooting cannonballs at them, right? That wouldn't make a lot of sense. And so you have to be really careful in your planning process. And you also have to think first, what would you do when you got on board? Like, what is your first thing going to be that you do? Are you going to immediately have all of your men tie up the crew? Are you going to have them just come on guns, you know, cutlasses blazing? Um, then what are you going to do with the stuff that's on the ship, right? How are you going to get it from that ship to your ship? And so it's really, it's not like the movies where you, they just pull up the side, throw over some planks and like swing on the ropes and just drop down and <laughs> right. uh, all of that because pirate ships, one of the things that would be terrible for them is to open fire on their prey because you're trying to get the stuff where you're shooting is going to be destroying this stuff. Right. It doesn't make any sense to send that, you know, those pieces of eight and that, that bullion, you know, down to the briny depths, right? If that's no. what you're trying to, you know, to, to carry back to market. Right. Exactly. And so I think that that's, where strategy is really important and some captains were really good at it and some not so much. I think a lot too depends on who it is that's on board. If you have somebody, for example, with naval background, maybe they were in the Royal Navy, they might be more prone to fighting the pirates as opposed to, um, you know, relinquishing their, their lot one of the most fascinating things that came out of this process of boarding and seizing cargo to me was during the chases, we have so many records of those ships that were being chased, tossing stuff overboard to make their ship faster because they were more willing to get rid of whoever's cargo that was, because it's not theirs, than they were to lose their lives. And so we see insurance, maritime insurance rates, you know, skyrocket essentially because it becomes so expensive to underwrite these voyages. You know, it's a it's a fascinating moment and partly because we can't see it in full and we are left to, you know, conjecture and, and to some degree. And I I would still nevertheless urge our listeners who are interested in um, in this age of piracy, your your account of the chase itself is every bit as gripping as one of my all-time favorite films, which is Master and Commander, which I'm now going to have to go and watch for like the ninth time, you know, after <laughs> having read your book. But, you know, there's, there's that sense of, of just 
you know, every decision that you make on the open water is just fraught with tension and just laden with consequence. And, you know, the slightest little slip in, in, you know, the rigging or, you know, the slightest shift in the wind, anything could happen to make you and your vessel suddenly vulnerable. And you really get a sense of that as you're, as we're sort of seeing Bellamy uh, track down and, and eventually seize the Whitta. Now, we need to skip forward a little bit because there is a, a, a sort of a fun um, narrative diversion that happens <laughs> that I had to ask you about. I just had to ask you, Jamie. Uh, they seize the Whitta. There's a ton of treasure on board. They let they let Prince and and some of the other crew go. They keep some of the crew as sort of standard practice. You know, you sort of um, a little bit of an exchange there, and and they head back up. Bellamy heads back up to Cape Cod. And and along the way, of course, you know, he, he's, he, you can take the tiger out of the jungle, but right, we know what happens to the jungle and the tiger. He sees more ships and the Widow is not enough for him at this point. He starts, you know, kind of going after even more ships as he's headed back up to his lady love and to... You know his um, his future fortunes. You know uh, in in the Massachusetts Bay Area. Well, they encounter a ship called the Marianne, and there is this amazing section that you have in your book where I don't even know how to sugarcoat this. Basically, you know, some pirates take the Marianne. Some of Bellamy's crew they take the Marianne. And they get drunk and they run it aground. <laughs> yeah. So, so what were they thinking? Oh, wait, they were pirates. Of course, they were just going to get drunk. T- help us to see that moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you got to celebrate, right? This is like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're the hundredth customer, right? Well, this is our whatever number ship. Let's celebrate. Um, and those men didn't necessarily know the. Massachusetts Bay Area waters as well as Bellamy. But they had but they had just seized a ship with 5000 gallons of wine on board. So. I mean, you know, when in Rome, if it's there, you got to drink it, right? Yeah. yeah. They get left, don't they? I mean, they just kind of stranded on shore where the Marianne is they they just fall out of the picture entirely. I mean, I guess they've got things to occupy their time if you got 5000 gallons but do 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 we ever get a sense of what happened to them afterwards did they ever show back up in the historical record so a few of the survivors there was a man his name has escaped me now but he had a small little boat that um, once he heard about there being some wreckage in the area the Massachusetts Bay area uh, anybody on the coast they heard about wreckage they were, you know, very interested in, in going to, to see what it was and fish it. Um, and so he decides to go inspect. He finds the a few of these survivors and brings them back with, you know, as much of the, the wine as they can take. Um, <laughs> and from that point, it becomes a little difficult to track. I think maybe one or two of them were ultimately arrested as part of the later situation. But uh, for the most part, they do. They just kind of disappear. We don't see them again. Um, so it's unclear. It's really unclear who was saved, too, because their names aren't given. Which is the same exact thing that happened with the Huida itself, is that there's a lot of inf- there's much more information that was lost than there was that was retained 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. We have to spoil the story a little bit, but it's not actually spoiling it at all because uh, this is this is so important to our contemporary understanding of pirate history. Tell us about the shipwreck of of the Witta. Oh, the Witta! So they are making their way towards Wellfleet out of nowhere. Fog is rolling in. Um, and so they develop a system where they try to like link the boats and, and have lights at the uh, bow of each boat so they can see each other in this dense fog. But ultimately they start to get separated. And because it's so foggy, they're not quite capable of discerning depth. Um, so their depth perception, they don't know how close they are to the coastline versus um, how close they are to being out towards the sea. And as the nor'easter moves in, um, so they're dealing with you know wind, rain, like it's just chaos essentially. Um, it was enough to take this boat and just you know toss it up against you know the the coastline, the shoals there, and um, ultimately the Witta was basically destroyed within. I don't know, a very short amount of time. Um, there were almost all of the individuals on board died, um, whether that was from drowning um, or whether that was from um, just exposure while they were out. Hypothermia from the icy water. Yeah. Yep. What little we do know about everything that happened comes from these select few survivors who managed to somehow get to shore and get aid in some way. You write that it was only about 500 feet to shore. And I think we, you know, we have the luxury in this moment of thinking, oh, 500 feet, you know, that's not bad. But, you know, not only are you probably malnourished because you're a pirate, you know, you're probably drunk. Um, The temperatures are freezing. (laughs) You know, you can't orient yourself. Um, You know, it's night, it's misty, it's foggy. You know, the storm is raging. You're in the middle of basically a Northern Atlantic hurricane, you know, the nor'easter. Like, it's it's about as bad as it can get. It's actually a miracle that anybody survived, isn't it? Right, yeah. I kind of liken it to an avalanche, right? Because if you get swept up in an avalanche, you don't know which way is up you might end up digging yourself further down into the snow, right? And that's one of the dangers. So when they wreck, they might be swimming further out to sea as opposed to swimming towards the coast. 
or they might just be swimming parallel. There is a paragraph in your book that I would love for you to read for us. And it, one of the reasons that I, I'd like you to do that is because, as you said uh, at the very beginning of this interview, you do not romanticize this life at all. I mean, we can have fun talking about drunk pirates quite literally shipwrecking themselves because they are drunk. And that is, that is fun. That is objectively yeah. hilarious. <laughs> but, but, you know, tied into that, um, of course, is the recognition of the risks of that particular type of life and the really savage level of violence, not just that you might have to inflict on somebody else, but which was also inflicted on you, you know? And so on page 116 of your book, there is uh, a paragraph which it describes the aftermath of the Witta. <laughs> and it does so in a way which, you know, um, I'm not a fatalist, Jamie, but <laughs> when I read it, I, I mean, it, it made me um, sort of take stock of some some of those some of those preconceptions that I might have about what the kinds of lives that we sign up for and uh, what what ends they might uh, meet. So I was just wondering if you, in order to ground us in some realism here, which is very necessary, uh, that paragraph just begins early the next morning. Would you? Would you read that to us, please? Yes, absolutely. Early the next morning, residents of the Cape Cod coast awoke to a gruesome sight. As the waves ebbed and flowed, bloated, mangled corpses slowly piled onto the shore. Reports from Cyprian Southwick, a naval veteran and Massachusetts local, began arriving quickly. One on May 5th, 1717, noted that at least 54 white men and four Africans had come ashore dead from the wreck. Another report on May 8th described how the coroner, Samuel Freeman, demanded payment of 83 pounds for the burial of 72 wreck victims. In his journal on May 9th, Southwick reported 76 had, to date, come on shore out of the pirate ship dead. In the meantime, the two widow survivors, Thomas Davis and John Julian, a mosquito Indian were taken to the Boston jail to await trial. That sight of, you know, the corpses washing to shore, I think is, you know, it's something that, that we need to remember did, did in fact happen. It was not all fun and games. And I, I really appreciated your, your reminding us of that as, as we went forward. Now, what's interesting about the Witta, what is more than interesting, what is absolutely historically significant beyond any expectation that we could have had <laughs> was that its story did not end there. Sam Bellamy's story ended there. He was among the drowned, but but the Witta itself was, after centuries thought to be lost, uh, its story got a new chapter. Tell us about the discovery of the wreck. So there was a man who was very interested in the story of Bellamy. He'd kind of grown up with this story. At one point, he is trying to decide what's next for his life. And Barry Clifford decides, I need to do something meaningful. I need to do something exciting. 
a very important person. Basically, after Clifford tells this story to some dinner guests, uh, one of the guests asks, well, why don't you go find it? Why don't you go find the ship? And he's like, why don't I? And he starts to put together funding and uh, started putting out feelers for where geographically near, like which part of the coast it would be close to. And it takes many years and it takes many expeditions out there. And there's a lot of failure along the way. At one point they, they find the ship, right? I think one of the things they found was a bell and that bell is what enabled them to identify that wreck officially as the Witta and not just a random shipwreck. Mm. Now, this is in the early 1980s, I believe, and uh, 1983, 84, something like that. And when, when Clifford finds this, I mean, you write that this is the first authenticated pirate shipwreck whose underwater archaeology has ever been conclusively found and established and determined so what what did this mean for you know the field when at the time i mean what what kind of doors did this blow open so in terms of researching piracy this particular find i mean it provides us with a really interesting look at material culture, um, using that material culture to better understand uh, pirates' activities and kind of what it was they were doing and um, what they found to be valuable. But also it gave us insight into maybe some of the types of people that were on board the Witta. Um, I believe John King, I think was his name, they found what was essentially a small leg bone and a little tiny shoe um, because he was a child. Essentially, I think he was 10 years old, uh, according to um, best estimates, uh, the youngest pirate ever recorded or something like that. And so I think that it opened people's minds to the possibility of researching piracy beyond textual evidence, which I think is really important. As somebody who did an archaeology degree, Material culture, I think, is a really interesting way to understand the past. Well, it's quite clear that the significance of this wreck is ongoing, and we still have so much more to learn. Have you been to the site? I understand that many of these these sites are protected in different ways, but have you been uh, either to the coastline nearby, or have you had a chance to kind of go in person to the area? I haven't yet, unfortunately. Eventually. The plan is to go. Uh, There is the Witta Museum, which I very much want to visit. Um, And so it would be really nice to to get to see it in person because I feel like it would be a really good way to visualize what happened since I know the story, being able to see the actual landscape, even though, you know, the landscape has changed uh, over the last few hundred years. Being in historical spaces is something that's really fascinating to me. Well, there's nothing quite like that atmosphere of breathing the same salt air and, you know, feeling the <laughs> wind on your face to uh, to really transport you back in time. Um, now, Jamie, you end your book with 
a ghost story. As if piracy were not enough, you end your book with a ghost story. And I am absolutely (laughs) not going to spoil that ghost story for our listeners here. For that, they actually have to go and read the book. And it is a doozy of a ghost story. (laughs) In in my prior reading on Sam Bellamy and and Maria Hallett, I'd never encountered this. And and when I read it, I was one of those sit upright in your chair kind of moments like, wow. So... Anyway, that is a perfect lead-in to our next series, which will be uh, on uh, Back to Paranormal. We're going to go back to spooky season for, for October. Um, a little little tip of the hat there for what's what's coming up next on Crime Capsule. But uh, for for now, it is a it is a hell of a story, and and I just am so excited that readers of this book will get to experience that for the first time because. Uh, my goodness, it'll that one might keep you up at night. Before we go, I have <laughs> just two last questions for you, and they are both extremely important, Jamie. The first one okay. is, what in all of your years as a researcher, uh, a, a trained historian, um, all of your doctoral work, uh, your three books, and uh, your your decades in the field, um, with all of this expertise brought to bear uh, upon uh, military history, naval history, uh, pirate history, um, European commerce, imperialism, you know, there's such a wide range of fields that you have had to study for for so long in order to arrive at these these conclusions. What is your favorite pirate joke? I am glad you asked because. I actually do have one. What is a pirate's letter? I mean, I think I have to say R, but I'm wondering if it's something else. <laughs> Nay, it be the C. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I failed that one miserably. My dad, who was in the Navy, is probably looking down on me now, just shaking his head. And, and, uh. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that. I would recount my own favorite pirate joke. It involves a steering wheel in, uh, in a particular region of the body, which I'm not actually allowed to tell because this is, in fact, despite all the murders and, and, and things we cover on Crime Capsule, it is, in fact, a family podcast. Thank you for that, Jamie. And then secondly, equally as important, uh, where can people find you and your books? If they want to look up your work, what's the best place to get a hold of you? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me would be to go to my website, jamiegoodall.com. Um, I have information on each of the books, the bookazine, um, and a lot of random fun stuff, uh, educational materials, um, but it has quick contact information. So also, if you purchase a copy of the book, it has a space for you to request a personalized book plate sticker that you can put in that I would sign. So that's the best place to reach me. And then you can find the books pretty much anywhere. Uh, I mean, obviously Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but one of my favorite things to do is to use IndieBound. I think it's .org. You put in the book that you're looking for and your uh, zip code, and it will find the closest local bookstores to you that carry it 
or who will order it for you. Those are all fantastic resources. And of course, we do love our independent booksellers. Uh, We are always very proud to support those whenever we can. Well, Jamie, let us uh, raise our tankards to your exhaustive work on uh, this particular topic. It is absolutely, uh, the sun is over the yard arm. It is five o'clock everywhere as we are finishing uh, this this recording, and you have earned a week's ration of rum, uh, <laughs> as far as I am concerned. So, ahoy. Uh, thank you for joining us, and this has been such a pleasure to talk pirates with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Jamie Goodall, author of The Daring Exploits of Black Sam Bellamy from Cape Cod to the Caribbean, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Before we sign off, let me just say thank you once more to all our guests, all of our staff at Evergreen, especially Bill Huffman, who puts up with my pirate jokes with the patience of a saint, and to our directors at History Press, particularly Kristen Thompson, who is the true captain of the ship and who hasn't forced me to walk the plank just yet. And thanks most of all to you, our listeners, for such a wonderful second season of Crime Capsule. You guys are the heart and soul of our mission. We are beyond grateful for your time, your attention, and your enthusiasm for the show. We've got some exciting things planned for our third season, which will kick off soon with another full round of spooky, just in time for Halloween. More on that in days to come. Until then, thanks again. And as the sun of a Navy man, let me close this year out with one of his favorite blessings. I bid you fair winds, my friends, and following seas. See you soon. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 